you're there in Mark chapter 11, I, I want you just to, to stay there and listen to these words from Scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. There are two temptations I find for myself when I come to this time of year and and Christmas as well. And you have these moments in the life of Christ that you're supposed to focus in on and and pay attention to. I find one of those temptations to be, I just want to hit the fast forward button. Especially with Easter, right? I mean, the triumphal entry, it's neat. There's a donkey ride. There are palm branches. Fun to reenact when you're a kid in Sunday school. Especially if you get to be Jesus. That was never me. But you, you get to do that, and that's great. You know, palm branches, all that. But, but the cross is coming, you know? And you're going, man, the cross is coming. The tomb, the empty tomb is coming. I want to get there. And so you just want to kind of speed it along. The other temptation is that we've been... At, In these passages so many times, we've read them so many times, we've heard them taught and preached so many times that you want to try and get clever. You want to get a little creative. You want to look for that detail no one has ever seen. Or if you're like me and you're not really a details person, you're more a creative guy, you start trying to find some perspective that no one has ever thought of before. And then you end up with really weird sermons like, the triumphal entry from the perspective of the donkey or how we need to be a palm branch for Jesus and you, you miss the whole point. I was convicted this week as I read through the gospel of Mark and let me tell you, it is an awesome gospel. That the most obvious thing, the theme of the Gospel of Mark is the same theme as the Gospel of Matthew, is the same theme as the Gospel of John, same as the Gospel of Luke. It's Jesus. What you and I need, more than we need to fast forward to a more exciting event, more than we need to hear something clever this morning, more than we need some creative perspective, we need to see Jesus, just behold Him. 
There is no one in all of history that could live up to the words that we just read, but the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how you come in here this morning. I don't know how your week has gone. I don't know what's going through your mind. I don't even know where you're at in your relationship to Jesus or with Him. But I know this this morning. That you will be blessed if you have an encounter with Jesus. If you leave this place seeing Him more clearly... You will be better than when you came in. And so we pray. My prayer this week for myself. My prayer for you this morning through this message as we look at this passage. Is that the spirit of the almighty God would work. Because it is his job to draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Now I don't know if you were supposed to preach your intro. But that just happened. I want us to see as we behold Jesus three things from this text. I want us to see three things from Jesus and hopefully learn three things from Jesus. One, I want us to see the obedience of Jesus and learn from His obedience. Second, I want us to see the humility of Jesus and learn from the humility of Jesus. And lastly, I want us to see the determination of Jesus and learn from the determination of Jesus. Jesus' obedience, His humility, and His determination. So Mark chapter 11 verse 1 starts with the word now. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem. That little word right there is is important because it's a transition in Mark's gospel. You see starting all the way back in chapter 8 there's been momentum that's been building. Right after the confession that Peter makes of Jesus as the Christ, momentum begins to build and this push towards Jerusalem begins. And this is a shift because now they've arrived. But, but, but there's, there's momentum that moving that way. Now, just a little background before we just dive into Mark. I I understand this Mark to be the Mark that we read of in Acts. He's the Mark who accompanied, John Mark, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas for at least part of their first missionary journey. I think that he's writing from uh, first-hand accounts from Peter. And Mark begins by presenting Jesus as the Son of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 1, that's how the gospel starts out, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's interesting that throughout the gospel of Mark, it's not people that you would expect who declare Jesus to be the Son of God. In fact, one of those is an unclean spirit or a man possessed by an unclean spirit. And then the bookend of Mark, in this presentation of Jesus as the Son of God, the proclamation doesn't come from a Jew. It comes from a Roman soldier. Having watched Jesus breathe his last, he says, truly this man was the Son of God. There's another son of statement that Mark focuses in on 14 times in the Gospel of Mark, the phrase Son of Man appears. It's a title that Jesus loved to take for Himself. It combines His authority and His humility. His reign and His suffering. His exaltation and His servanthood. Mark is a gospel of action. He loves action and so things are moving around. And from chapter 1 into chapter 8, Mark is moving all around and and Jesus is ministering throughout Galilee. And then come the confession of, of 
Peter that Jesus is the Christ in Mark chapter 8 verse 29 and then things begin to shift and then there's all this momentum towards Jerusalem. Following right after Jesus' confession that, that excuse me, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, this is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. He begins teaching them about the necessity of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. In fact, the very tense of the verse shows it's a a foregone conclusion. It's absolutely certain that this is going to happen. Jesus knew what was coming for him, what awaited him in Jerusalem. Three different times throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and tries to explain to them what's going to take place. In chapter 9, verse 32, it says that they didn't understand. And then as we read in chapter 10, that they were amazed as they made their way to Jerusalem that Jesus is walking out front and they're afraid. Still confused, still not understanding that Jesus was walking to Jerusalem because He was doing what He had come to do. He was obeying the will of the Father. Now I know, we're sitting there going, wait a second, we've not even got through the first phrase of verse 1, but we got, you've got to capture this. Jesus is getting to Jerusalem. We get to this now because Jesus was walking in faithful obedience. John chapter 5 verse 19, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Paul, when he looked back on the life of Christ, and he's looking back on Jesus' incarnation in Philippians chapter 2, he says that Jesus took on human form, and, and then he became, he became obedient. He says he became obedient to the point. What was the point? It was the point of death, even death on a cross. So the act of obedience and taking on flesh continued all the way to the cross. It becomes crystal clear, of course, in the garden in Mark 14, verse 36, where Jesus prays, Lord, if there's a way, Father, if there's a way for this cup to pass for me, let it happen, but not my will, your will be done. I know inside of us there's a desire to get to the cross and we want to see that moment. We sang about that moment this morning and we should have a desire to get to the cross. We want to see Jesus, this perfect sacrifice, shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins to make atonement for us. We want to see an empty tomb. We want to see those things. Our heart longs for those things. But listen to me, folks. As much as we need the cross of Christ, we need the faithful obedience of Christ that led to that cross. Every step of simple obedience that Jesus took to get to Jerusalem, and once He arrived in Jerusalem, to get to that cross was just as important as the cross itself. Paul makes very clear that what we needed was not just to have atonement made for us. We needed a righteous life on our behalf. Jesus said Himself, He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And we needed Him to fulfill the law on our behalf. 
So that, as Paul says in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God sent His Son and did what we could not do. It was not an accident that Jesus arrived at Jerusalem. It wasn't by chance. It was because of persistent daily obedience. This, this Easter season, this Passion Week, yes, marvel at the obedience of Jesus Christ to die on the cross, but do not overlook the daily obedience of an entire life that got Him there. And as you wake up on Monday morning and you think, what am I supposed to do today? And the kids are screaming and you got to go to work and, and your boss is nagging you and, and the person cuts you off as you're driving down the road and you're fighting because these seem like insignificant moments. Marvel at the faithful obedience of Jesus who never once stumbled. Every step that He took was a step of faithful obedience. We need to learn from Him. Oh, we need to learn from Him. Marvel at His obedience, but also learn from it. I heard this quote that authenticity is the new apologetic. And I think that's a good quote. The only thing I would disagree with is the word new. I don't know that it's necessarily new that an obedient life A life of integrity makes for a good apologetic. In fact, we know as Jesus enters Jerusalem, what's going to happen? He is going to be relentlessly attacked. They're going to try to find anything, any way they can trip him up, any accusation that will stick on him. But by the time you get all the way to right before Pilate is going to turn Jesus over to be crucified, Pilate himself asks the question, what evil has this man done? It was the miraculous power of Jesus that caused so many problems for these religious leaders and those who wanted to write him off. But it was also his consistent life of obedience. In our day and time, I think we can take a lesson from Jesus that as we live in a culture that progressively marginalizes or wants to push to the side the truth claims of Scripture. May we follow in His footsteps and know that there, if, if we want to, to make sure that, that, that people can't just write us off, that, that when we speak of the truths of God's Word, that they can't just be written off, that more than we need to scream louder than everybody else, we need to make sure that we're walking in faithful obedience. Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, when his family came to get him thinking that he was crazy and wanting to take him away and being told that his, his mother and his brothers and his sister were outside, he said, who is my mother and my brother and my sister? But those who do the will of the Father. May we marvel at the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ and may we take a lesson from him to walk in obedience. So, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. 
untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And I will send it and, and, <clears throat> and will send it back here immediately. The second thing we see is the humility of Jesus. This, this text, as I mentioned before, is so simple that over and over again it's been reenacted in Sunday school classrooms for centuries now. As we look at it, it's pretty simple to understand. And one aspect of this text is you can go into the, the, the historicity of it and, and try and understand the geography and all of those things. And we don't have time to go into all of that. But as Jesus arrives to at near Jerusalem, to Bethany, I, I think that's, that's where he is. And when he talks about going into a village or sending his disciples into a village, I think it's Bethpage that he's sending them to. We don't know which two disciples he picks. I would venture to say that Peter was probably one of them if, again, Mark is writing as an, uh, at the account of Peter. Not only that, but Peter seems to be one of the disciples whose awkward meter was permanently broken. So walking into some random place and untying a donkey that's not yours and walking off with it, that seems to fit Peter. He'd have been like, yeah, I got no problem. I'll do that. Sends two disciples who we don't know to go and to get, and our text says, a colt. Now, it's clear from Matthew chapter 21 and verse 2 and also the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling that this is a young donkey. Jesus gives clear instructions as to what's to happen. And really one of the main questions that I find myself asking is how does Jesus know that there's a donkey, that no one's ever ridden this donkey before? How does he know that this is going to happen this way? Well, there is the possibility that he just had planned it all out ahead of time. That could be the case. We also know that Jesus at times acted upon his divine knowledge. Back in Mark chapter 2, he did that when he, was, when he was forgiving the sins of a paralyzed man. And it says the scribes, they, 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 were, they were discontent in their hearts. They questioned Jesus in their hearts. And then Jesus responds to them as if what was going on in their hearts was just out there for everybody to see. He knew it and he responded to it. So that could be happening here as well. What is absolutely clear is that Jesus is in full and total control in this situation. This is not happening by chance. This isn't just fly by the seat of your pants, don't really know what's going to happen. This is happening very purposely. Jesus is in full control. And, and Mark, in order to show this, is this guy of action, takes the time to give us three verses to tell us Jesus, what Jesus said, and then three more verses to show us that it happened exactly like Jesus said it would. Look at the following verses, Mark chapter 11, verse 4. And they went away and found the colt tied at a door outside the city. So again, I think this may be where they entered into Bethphage to find this donkey. And it's there, it's tied up. And they untie it. Again, I, this is a little awkward to me. You're just walking, I mean, this would be the, uh, the equivalent of you just walking into a busy neighborhood and there's somebody's car parked in their driveway, and you just walk up to the car, neighbors are out, kids playing in the street, some guy's mowing his grass, and you just open the car door, you get inside, fire up the engine, and off you go. That's, that's awkward. They go to untie this colt, this donkey, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? 
Now we know from Luke chapter 19 that at least one of these was the owner of this donkey. And it says that they told them, verse 6, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Which, of course, what did Jesus tell them? Well, Jesus had told them to say, the Lord has need of it. That raises all kinds of questions. Did Jesus mean all that we can pack into that title, Lord? What, 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 did, what, did, that, what did he mean? Well, I think at least we know that they understood who needed this donkey. And they were happy to send the donkey along once they knew that Jesus had need of it. I'm not certain that they understood, and it would be really odd, especially in the Gospel of Mark, for Jesus to take the title of Lord and to pronounce Himself to be Lord in that way because He does it nowhere else in the Gospel. So they send this donkey along. Back to Jesus. Jesus is in absolute and total control. He said this is what's going to happen. It's exactly what's happened. Jesus' authority is absolutely clear. I know it might not just jump off of the page right here in these, 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 uh, this section of Scripture. But as you read through the Gospel of Mark, he emphasizes over and over again the supreme authority of Jesus Christ. Right from the beginning in Mark chapter 1, the people are amazed at the teaching of Jesus. From there, he, 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 he pronounces the forgiveness of sins over a man, and, and he makes clear that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Later on in chapter 2, he shows that, that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath and has authority over the Sabbath. Then he shows that Jesus has authority over physical ailments, over fever and leprosy and broken bodies and withered hands and bleeding and deaf ears and blind eyes. Jesus has authority over nature and the feeding of the 5,000 and then in the feeding of the 4,000. And then in Mark chapter 4, he speaks to the wind and the waves as he calms the storm and they listen to him. Mark shows the authority of Jesus in chapter 5 when he slows down. One of the rare moments that Mark slows down to talk about this demon-possessed man who is so wild and out of control that the remark is, is made that no one had the strength to subdue him. And this man but sees Jesus at a distance and he comes running and falls down at Jesus' feet. Jesus had authority over death, Mark chapter 5, as he heals Jairus' daughter and we'll, we would see if we continued reading in Mark chapter 11 that Jesus had authority over the temple as he cleanses it and then sets up shop and doesn't even allow anyone to pass through it. Jesus has absolute and total authority. In fact, the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling here comes from Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. And this is what that prophecy says, this riding on a donkey. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. That's a strong image that's presented there. Verse 10 says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Now when you 
picture that in your mind. I'm thinking like a, a big buff king on a war horse, armor clad, sword in hand, maybe an army behind him, bringing salvation. But right in the middle of that, at the end of verse 9 of Zechariah, it says he's humble or gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It almost sounds like two different people are being presented. As I mentioned throughout the Gospel of Mark, there, there, there is this affection for the term son of man. And this term son of man finds its roots in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. And this is what Daniel says. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It doesn't get much more authoritative than that. Someone whose position and place is so lofty and high that every nation should serve Him and every people serve Him and every language serve Him. A kingdom that cannot be destroyed. Jesus takes that title, Son of Man, and listen to what He says in Mark chapter 10. As they're headed towards Jerusalem and James and John have come up to Jesus and said, Hey Jesus, I want you to do, we want you to do for us what we ask of you. What did they ask? We want to sit on your right hand and on your left in your kingdom. This is the type of kingdom James and John are, are thinking about. When the disciples find out they're indignant and Jesus begins to instruct them and says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Listen to this. For even the Son of Man, the one who rightfully deserves the service of all peoples, all nations, all languages, even He did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now I know I said that what we want to see is the humility of Jesus and all I've been talking about is the authority of Jesus and here's the reason why. You cannot see the beauty of the humility of Jesus without the backdrop of the authority of Jesus. He is absolutely, totally authoritative. He deserves the praise of all people. It should be the other way around. People should be serving Him. And yet He rides in in humility. There's a story I heard once, I don't remember if I read it or if it was in a sermon that I listened to, but I think it was a true story. It was of a young man who showed up early to start his college career and he's excited and he gets all his stuff uh, settled in his dorm room and then he goes to use the restroom on the dorm hall and he walks in and kind of to his shock and surprise, the bathroom is filthy. Clearly there had been maybe some event, the campus had been used, and maybe other bathrooms were cleaned, and this one had not been cleaned. And it was disgusting, toilets were clogged, it was just filthy. So he leaves there, and he calls the front desk, he talks to the person there, says, hey, you know, the bathroom's gross, you know, it needs to be taken care of. Doesn't think anything of the fact that a man shows up, not long after that, cleaning products, plunger, fixes everything, cleans it, plunges toilets, everything's good to go, nothing out of the ordinary until the welcome assembly takes place 
and the president of the university is introduced. And to this young man's shock, the man that showed up to clean the toilets was none other than the president of the university. Now again, if it had been the janitor, it wouldn't be that the janitor doesn't matter. It wouldn't be that he's less than a human being. It would just be that he's doing his job. So we wouldn't applaud him. We don't stand outside as the trash man comes and, or woman comes and applaud them and thank them profusely for doing their job. They're doing their job. May we, as we consider Christ, we consider Him humble riding this donkey into Jerusalem, may we never have the mindset that Jesus is just simply doing what He's supposed to do. But rather that He is the Son of Man, and His rightful place is a dominion above all other dominions. And yet, He's humble, and He's serving, riding in, On a donkey. Behold the humility of Jesus on the backdrop of his absolute authority. He's driving all of this. It's not out of control. He's making it happen. We could learn from him. We should learn from him. In a day and time and in a culture where there's so much clamoring for rights for position, for privilege, for authority, to protect what's mine, to fight against anyone who would dare step on me or come near me or infringe upon what's rightfully mine. We have this example of Jesus who instead of entering the fray, demanding what was His, is willing to leverage who He is in the service of others around Him. As the church in America continues to be marginalized and pushed to the side, I don't think the example of Jesus for this period in redemptive history is to run out into the fray and to enter into all of the screaming and all of the mayhem, demanding rights, demanding authority, throwing your weight around, but rather to take all of the privilege that we have and to use it to serve. That's noteworthy. We could come up with list after list of individuals who have high privilege and authority and use it for their own gain, for their their own advantage. But when someone who has a rightful place of privilege and authority lays it down or leverages it to serve those who cannot repay, that's rare. That's noteworthy. May we behold the humility of Jesus May we marvel at His humility because we understand that this is the very Son of Man. And yet He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We've looked at the obedience of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and now I want us to see the determination of Jesus. The determination of Jesus Verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 7 says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, this isn't uh, 
hard to understand. This young colt is brought to Jesus. Now, it is interesting that Jesus mentions no one's ever ridden on this donkey before. It wasn't like there was a sign around the donkey's neck as he paraded into Jerusalem, never ridden on before. I don't know if it had like a new donkey smell still, or if it had like stickers, the purchase price was still on there. Um, I guess when you buy a new car, you leave that on as long as you can. Never had that experience, but you, I don't, this was just so that those who were near him would know. And it did have significance. Animals that had never been used before were set aside for sacred purposes. So when this donkey is brought to Jesus, because it doesn't have a saddle or anything like that, some of the disciples there lay their cloaks on it, and he sits on it. First to ever sit on this donkey, and rightfully so. And many, verse 8, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, of course, Mark here is just, it's just action. We go from one thing to the next. Where in the course of things, once Jesus, where this donkey arrives to Jesus, and when he sits on it, and when the commotion picks up, is not clear in Mark's account. But clearly at some point as Jesus sits on this donkey and the people understand what is transpiring, they respond by laying down their cloaks and putting palm branches and leafy branches in the road. This is a clear declaration of who they want Jesus to be. They want Jesus to be their king. Why do we know that? Well, because this was a very clear statement. It takes us back to 2 Kings chapter 9 where Jehu, who is replacing Ahab, is anointed as king and as he comes in, this is exactly the same thing they do for him. They want Jesus to be king. They want him to be their political king. And so this this begins, verse 8, and what they're doing in their actions then transfers into their speech, verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting. So we've got two groups of people here. Those who were following Jesus. There were people who had followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. There were those also who had followed Him because He had just come through Jericho. And there were people He picked up along the way in Jericho. In fact, Mark records blind Bartimaeus who joins into this once he gets his sight from Jesus. And he joins in and he follows Jesus. So he's got some who are coming from Jericho. Some are coming from Bethany. Because it wasn't long ago that Jesus had raised this dead guy. Which is kind of an amazing thing. Raises this dead guy named Lazarus. And, and so some have joined him from Bethany. We also know because of the way that... Um, that it's described in other gospel accounts, there are also some who come out of the city of Jerusalem. Pilgrims who have already arrived in Jerusalem who come out. So I think that's the image that Mark is giving us here. There are those behind and those who are coming in front of. And what do they say? Hosanna! Save! We pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. As Jesus comes riding in, they begin to quote from Psalm 118. 
A Hallel psalm sung at the feast and particularly at Passover. More than likely it would have been one one section of the crowd that would have shouted Hosanna and the other section would have responded, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are clear messianic implications here. As I understand it, what they're hoping, what they want, they want God to bless this this prophet, they want them to bless him. They want him to be the fulfillment of the, of the prophecy made to David that, that, that the Davidic kingdom would be restored. They want that now. They want to be done with Rome. They want to be free. They want to be a nation again, free from Rome and from enslavement. I do not think they totally understood In fact, it's clear that they didn't fully understand. John tells us in John 12 verse 16 that the disciples didn't fully understand until after Jesus' glorification exactly what was happening. So here's Jesus riding in the midst of this. And this is a very unique situation in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, one, is never seen riding. And two, in in the Gospel of Mark, he's always pushing the attention away. He heals people and says, don't tell anybody. He stays out of the towns and cities and prefers instead to be out in desolate areas. But here he's riding right in the midst of it. Another thing that makes so clear that what's transpiring here is not that people are fully understanding who Jesus is and what he's about is what Luke tells us in Luke 19. There would have been a point where, where Jerusalem would have come partly into view as he walked down this, or as he, as he rode the donkey down this path, and these people are declaring these things. But then there would have been a moment, right before he descended into the Kedron Valley, where all of Jerusalem would have opened up before him. And when he sees that city, he is not overwhelmed with joy. Instead, Luke 19 tells us that Jesus weeps. Not quietly like he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, but out loud he's weeping. It is almost a weird scene that's transpiring as you have people who are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the man that they are ascribing, that they're praying, will deliver them as a man who's looking at the city and he's weeping. Because he sees what is going to happen. and Because he understands their hardness of heart. In the midst of all of this, Jesus is absolutely undeterred. I know it's easy to read it and go, well, of course he is, because this is the way the story's supposed to go. But remember, he's 100% God, but he's 100% man. All around him is confusion, and and even from his own disciples. I I know we we, we think, okay, the night that Jesus dies, his disciples, when he dies, his disciples abandon him. Yes, they do, but... Already they're confused. He's being misunderstood and the desire is that he will just take up the kingdom. But he is undeterred in the midst of all of that confusion. In Mark's account, this crowd that rises up seems to dissipate just as quickly. Because in verse 11 it says, And he entered Jerusalem... And went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. 
Well, what did Jesus see when he got to the temple? Well, we know what he saw because of what comes. In verse 15, he did not see faithful worshipers who had brought their offerings. Instead, what he saw was a, a den of robbers. There was an offer by these people for Jesus to just be a political king. But he was absolutely undeterred. In the midst of all of the fanfare that was around him in Mark's account, he continues, he presses forward to what he knows is the will of the Father. Marvel at the determination of Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I am trying to do what I know is right and the people closest to me don't understand, aren't standing there applauding for me, go you! I struggle with that. I don't know about you, but when I just live in this world right now and there's such a pressure to conform to popular opinions and ideas on all types of different topics, I want to crumble underneath that. I want to look up from the will of the Father, which to us is given clearly in the Word of God, and kind of check and see what's popular opinion right now. What's being said on social media. Even within the Christian community, there is this, this social media mindset that says, yeah, okay, this, this may be what I see, but let's check and see how many likes it'll get. In the midst of all of this, Jesus is absolutely undeterred. Moving towards, driving towards the will of the Father. May we see the determination of Jesus. And may we find in ourselves that same determination. To know, study, and the will of the Father and to be absolutely committed to it. You know, clarity would not come, I don't think, as I read, especially the Gospel of Mark, clarity does not come until the cross and the empty tomb. Now there's something there. (laughs) I think we should be able to understand the confusion of this moment. After all, we live in the South. Have you talked to somebody about Jesus lately? People have got some weird ideas about Jesus. Almost everybody apparently has met Him, but few people really know Him. And the moment of clarity for people comes when? The moment of clarity comes when we talk about the Jesus who died on the cross and who rose again the third day. It was the same thing in Senegal. You could talk to Muslims about Jesus. The Quran says great things about Jesus. Till you come to the cross and the empty tomb. Those things made clear, they brought clarity. It was what Jesus' life was driving towards and it's what helped His disciples and others understand who He was and it drove a fork in the ground to say either you accept Him as the Son of Man, either you accept Him as the promised Messiah and the suffering servant, or you reject Him altogether. Are our lives that determinately driven? Could it be said of you and me that the moment of clarity for people who look at our lives is the cross of Christ and the resurrection? 
Because as clarity came to these disciples who were a part of this, at least for 11 of them, the cross of Christ and the resurrection would be a defining moment and everything that happened for them after that point could only be explained because of the cross and the resurrection. May we have that determination that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ to commit to the will of the Father. And may the clarity come for those around us only as they understand the cross of Christ and His resurrection. Friends, behold Jesus. In obedience, perfect, simple obedience to the will of the Father. Every step of the way. Behold His humility. Learn from it. Behold His determination. Behold Jesus. There is nothing more marvelous, no one more wonderful to see than Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the wonderful gift of the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray again this Easter season that we as a local body that we would behold Jesus. That we wouldn't be swayed by the temptation to move on too quickly. Get back to life. That that we wouldn't be swayed by the temptation to look for some unique little detail or trivial uh, little perspective. But instead, we would just behold Jesus and that we would sit at His feet and learn from Him. We pray it in His mighty name and to His glory. Amen.